0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. Got quite a game that we're going to be covering here in today's episode. Game two of the 1969 World Series between the Mets and the Orioles. What a pitcher's duel we've got between a pair of Southpaws, Dave McNally of the Baltimore Orioles and Jerry Kuzman. So in this episode, we're going to go like we did in the last one, sort of through the play-by-play, you know, not every play, but really going over the highlights and all of that. Uh, But what we're also going to be doing is, like the last episode, is going into the background of some players. We're not going to go over everybody. I mean, the focus is going to be on McNally and Kuzman. Uh, we'll get a little bit into Don Clendenin. He comes up big in this game, and Brooks Robinson has his moments, and uh, there are other players. Al Weiss comes through with a big clutch hit, um, but this is a really, really exciting game. Um, and 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 it, it, I kind of pose a question in my head sometimes. You know, do I prefer a pitcher's duel or a slugfest? You know, because both types of games, you know, whether it's a 2-1 game or a 7-5 game, I mean, what really gets me is it's not necessarily the score of the game. It's what are those big moments, those tense moments. Because sometimes you can have a 1-0 game that's not really interesting or a 2-1 game. It's not really interesting. But then you can have a game like this where you've got tense moments, big pressure, Great defensive plays that really can sell a game. You know, on the other hand, you you can have a game that has a lot of scoring, but it can be a real slog. There can be lots of pitching changes, and you know, maybe it's they have they put up a crooked number late in a game to sort of make the score closer. But you know, it really comes down to those moments. I mean, I think back to that game between the uh, the Astros and the Dodgers in 2017, where they're just. It's just three-run homer after three-run homer just swings. I mean, that is a great game. But I also certainly enjoy those pitchers' duels. And what certainly helps is back then you had the pace of the game. The pace of the game was so much quicker than it was today. Um, and th- there's a lot of factors into that. Number one, hitters tended to swing earlier. It wasn't that pitchers were necessarily throwing more strikes. Or didn't walk as many guys, but it was just, at-bats didn't go deep, as deep as they do now. And we'll see whether or not there's, you know, encouragement of, you know, affecting pace of play in today's game. We'll see if those things sort of continue to develop. But, you know, so what I'm interested in, and specifically getting into this game is, you know, you have two... It's, it's really, I mean, the first game, of course, was a marquee matchup that was a bit of a letdown uh, in some ways. I think it was a really great game, and and sometimes, and, and this is the other thing, is the score of a game isn't necessarily, necessarily reflective of how close it was. I mean, a few, a few things break one way or the other. You know, we think about in game one, if... They're able, you know, they had Cuellar on the ropes in the seventh and in the ninth. They get a base hit. You know, Brooks Robinson d- doesn't come up with that slow roller. It could be a d- it could be a much different story. Or also, if Seaver bears down in that in that fourth inning before before everything, you know, before the wheels came off, we could have been looking at a much ten- tenser game. Um, so sometimes, you know, the score isn't reflective of uh, how close things are. And, and you know, in the other way, is sometimes you might have a 1 0 game where you feel like the other team never had a chance just based off of how dominant a pitcher was. And that's what this game sort of felt like, you know, in the sense of, you know, it kind of felt like one run might have been enough to do it. Um, but we're going to see as we get into it. That it wasn't necessarily the case, but it's a really great game, a really great pitchers matchup uh, between Dave McNally and Jerry Kuzman, both of whom were around the same age. I believe McNally was just a bit older uh, by a few month by a few months uh, than Dave McNally, uh, then then Jerry Kuzman. Jerry Kuzman's from Minnesota. Dave McNally's from. Montana. They both had different stretches. McNally was a much more established pitcher at this point in his career, and of course, had come off of a tremendous closeout performance in Game 4 of the 1966 World Series, had a complete game shutout, and was now, he was on a stretch in 1969. It was the second year of a four-year stretch of winning 20 games each season. He was uh, he was really establishing himself as one of the dominant left handed pitchers in the league. Obviously, along with Mike Quayar, his teammate, um, and Jerry Kuzman. On the other hand, this was only his second full season in the big leagues, despite being around the same age. And that's because, well, he went to he went to college, but his school, Minnesota Morris. Which is now now has a Division three baseball program. They actually didn't have a baseball team at the time, and he tried transferring to a school in North Dakota, but he was found ineligible to play. Uh, so he actually signed up. Uh, you know, was in the Army Reserves, and uh, was down down in Texas, and uh, a uh, someone who was on his base was uh, his uh, family member. We either had an uncle or, or, or a stepfather or something like that was an usher at Chase stadium was like, Hey, this, you know, and of course in the army, you know, they went around, they, they played baseball and stuff like that. It's like, Hey, this guy's got a real live arm. And, and that's sort of what uh, Jerry Kuzman was known. And so that he was signed. Um, and so he didn't enter professional baseball until he was uh, in his, in his early twenties around 22, 23. Whereas Dave McNally who was a star in Montana baseball, did great in American Legion, and sort of the Dodgers and the Orioles were sort of coveting him. Um, you know, he was signed at the age of 19 and made the big leagues very early on and was an established big league pitcher. He didn't really hold on to that rotation spot until the 1965-1966 season. Uh, but by this point, he was he was well-established as one of the best pitchers in baseball. And he got off to a great start this season. I mean, my goodness. He started off this season, 1969. He started off 15 and Oh, 15 and Oh. I mean, that's just, that's just incredible. I mean, we, we rarely, we rarely see guys win 15 games nowadays. Uh, But he had sort of a a rough stretch in August of that year. He went, I believe he went two and five, um, had a, had a rough, had a rough August, but then he he finished the year a little bit stronger, picking up three wins. He, so on on the year he was twenty and seven, which is still, of course, outstanding. Outstanding ERA. Again, the Orioles have a great defense behind you. They don't really switch things up, but uh, man, they were they were really. He had a tremendous year, and uh, and most importantly. So against the Twins, they had had game one against the Twins. They had an extra innings win. Uh, it was Cuellar versus Jim Perry, and the the Orioles were able to squeak one out in extras. They again had to go to extras, and they were uh, Dave McNally was going up against Dave Boswell, who happened to actually be from Baltimore, uh, but pitched for uh, pitched for the Twins. I think he actually and that was actually his most 1969 was his best season he went 20 and 12 that was kind of the end of his career unfortunately but they i mean talk about a classic pitchers duel my goodness that game was incredible um and cuz McNally threw 11 shutout innings 11 shutout innings and thankfully his team Kurt Mouton uh Kurt Mouton m- mispronouncing his name but had a pinch hit walk off walk off hit uh, to end it in in 11, uh, heartbreak both both games for the Twins, who then got blown out in Game 3. So Dave McNally, after a rough Game 1 of the 1966 World Series, closed out that, that Game 4 with a 9-inning shutout, then had an 11-inning shutout. So he's got 20 scoreless innings of postseason baseball that he's riding on. Jerry Kuzman, on the other hand, as a, young, as a young pitcher, a little, uh, as I mentioned, different road, different road. And uh, I'm going to get into his story and I'm going to kind of get into the lead up and the start of this game after a moment
1: from our sponsor. Mickey Mantle, the business executive, knows a thing or two about looking your best. Mickey Mantle, the baseball legend, also knows a thing or two about having a good time. Hey, Mick. You look like you haven't showered in a week. Really, yo? I gotta do the pregame show live right now. With that hair? No way. Try this. Huh.
0: Real cream? Really? The greasy kid stuff?
1: Nah. Just a little dab will give your hair life and body. A little dab, huh? I Guess I'll try it. We are on in five, four, three. Hey, Mick. Looking
0: good. Thanks, Yog. By the way, I'll never get used to seeing you in the Mets uni.
1: <laughs> well that's because the Yankees fired me. Brill cream. A little dab, and it looks like you just showered. Brill cream. cream. A little dab will do ya for men who haven't showered in a week.
0: So Jerry Kuzman, the the Mets young, well, not that young, uh, but again, number two starter behind Tom Seaver, in only his second full season in the majors, he had an excellent rookie campaign in 1968, going 19 and 12 with a 2.08 ERA, finishing second, quite a close second to Johnny Bench in the National League Rookie of the Year voting. Anytime you're right behind Johnny Bench, you're in good company. Uh, But he had an excellent season, was an all-star, and was very much along with Tom Seaver, Gary Gentry, and Nolan Ryan, the reason why there was a lot of promise around this young Mets team. With, uh, with, With young pitching like that, with the talent they had, how hard they threw. I mean, they were very much sort of more modern pitchers. Um, not to say Dave McNally didn't and Jim Palmer, you know, didn't throw hard, but they were kind of more re- relying on your defense. Where whereas, you know, obviously we would look at the strikeout rates now and say, well, they're quite paltry, but compared to the rest, to their uh, to their peers, the Mets were quite outstanding. Uh, when it came to how hard they threw, how they struck the guys out, and how they attacked. Um, Kuzman was outstanding again in uh, 1969, going 17-9 with a 2-2-8 ERA. Um, he did miss a bit of time with an injury and was really on a hot streak uh, entering uh, entering the playoffs. He didn't have a great start against the Braves in, uh, in Game 2, um, but overall was was quite excellent uh down the stretch for the Mets and you know they the Mets also had they had an excellent bullpen with Ron Taylor and and Tug McGraw Tug McGraw was excellent in the uh in the games against the Braves um interestingly enough Tug McGraw a little bit of a spoiler alert he warms up a couple times in this series he doesn't make an appearance um you know that's kind of interesting with, with the Mets of you know, they very much relied on their pitching. Gil Hodges uh had had his lineups and had had the switches that he would do. Um, and you know, of course, going up against Dave McNally, he's gonna stick with his right-handed lineup. So that meant no Ed Cranepool, no Art Shamsky, no Wayne Garrett. You know, we're gonna see again um the lineups is gonna be. I mean, obviously you had A. G leading off, Bud Harrelson at short Cleon Jones in left The top three of the order really never changed for the Mets, but now you had Don Glenn um, again up there, Ron Swoboda, Ed Charles, Jerry Grody was always there at catcher and Al Weiss at second because you had a, you had a lefty on the mound. So those other guys who did great against the Braves did great against that right-handed pitching. Well, they weren't going to see the field against the, uh, against the Orioles, two lefties. Now, the Orioles, on the other hand, Earl Weaver, he didn't, he didn't really switch things around. He kept, he kept his lineup in order. The Only thing he would switch would be the catcher. So instead of Ellie Hendricks, who was a left-handed hitting catcher, we had Andy Etcheparin. Um, but, you know, you still had Buford Blair Robinson, the outfield trio at the at the top of the order, Powell, Brooks, Davey Johnson, and then Mark Belanger in the eighth spot, and Dave McNally uh, hitting ninth. And so that's that's what's going to kind of lead us into, um, you know, before I get into the actual plays, I'm going to play a short clip here from, uh, you know, Tony Kubek. So this is one of the things that I'm kind of relying on for going back and looking at these World Series is actually watching, uh, watching the games. I, I've had a real kick and taken real joy uh out of doing that. And one of the things, uh, obviously, you know, we're going to, again, in this game, we're going to have Kurt Gowdy doing the main play by play. we got Bill O'Donnell who, uh, he steps in and does play by play and does a little bit of color commentary as well. Uh, he was the Orioles broadcaster at the time. And then f- kind of for in-game comments or uh, sort of on field or in the crowd interviews, we've got Tony Kubek, uh, who, uh, was a former player and he's got, Quite an interesting pair of people he's interviewing at the beginning of this game and is kind of getting their thoughts for what they see as the series heading in to game two.
2: ...back as the guest downstairs, and let's go down to Tony right now. Thank you, Bill. We're standing here in the commissioner's box with Commissioner Bowie Kuhn, and right to my right, Joe DiMaggio, a name that I think everybody remembers. And Joe, this has been quite a year for you. Named on the all-time great
3: team. It's been some summer. Well, it certainly has, and thanks so much, uh... Tony, the thing is, I wish we had been in the World Series, but here I am attending it and I'm enjoying it. Joe,
2: you, uh, of course, viewed this Baltimore Orioles ball club all year long in your capacity as a vice president with the Oakland A's. What about, what are your impressions of this ball club? Well, they're in a shirt ball club. I have
3: never seen a more confident one I have seen them all year. The thing that impresses me more than anything else is the fact that they will make a physical mistake every so often, but no mistakes they do not make. You know just when they were run. They know uh, when to make the cutoff plays. They do it all very well. Their pitching, we know without a doubt, is very fun. What about uh, this Mets ball? Have you seen much of them this year? Well, I haven't seen too much of them. I saw some of the playoff games, and I'd have to say that the Gil Hodges has done just a fabulous job in getting this young team together. The most outstanding thing that they have in their balls, but naturally, is their pitching. You have to give that catching a little credit, too. And there again, I'd have to say that Yogi Berra has done a fine job in working with some of these boys, as well as that coaching
2: center. Joe, you know, talking about center field for just a little bit, uh, something I noticed, of course, you were a great center fielder. And you played fairly shallow throughout your career in Yankee Stadium. You had a lot of room in the room. Have you had a chance to
3: uh, see Paul Blair? He well, plays very shallow. Shallow. I certainly have. As a matter of fact, I commented on that just the other day with McNamara and some of the American League officials in that box. And I said, that man plays an awful shallow center field. Let's up there while a line drives certainly can go over his head. And At that time, it was a critical point. There were two men on base. He does play an awful shallow center field.
2: Now, let's talk a little bit about the third baseman for this Baltimore ball club. You've seen some great third basemen and played with some, too. What about Brooks Robinson? What about the play he made yesterday?
3: One of the finest, I think, that I have seen in all my baseball years. I didn't get to see Robinson too much up until the time that I went to spring training with the Yankees. And I saw a lot of boys. And I think that boy was about as fine a third best I've ever seen. But this man has to be his equal, if not, possibly a little better. Like that one play he made coming in and all in one motion and throwing from any position and getting that boy at first base, he did a great
2: job. And I think everything he does around third base is just great. Joe, let me ask the commissioner of baseball at present. Commissioner, we saw another fine ball game again yesterday, but I think you'll agree it's not over with yet. These Mets fans can't wait to get up to New York City. Well, the Mets have been climbing for the last eight years, Tony. They're used to looking up, so I don't think the Mets are giving up at all. I think we're going to have quite a series from here on in. Oh, well, that the playoff against the Braves. Every time Henry entered hit a home run, Garrett came along and hit one, then Boswell came along. The something club that just doesn't give up.
3: Well, this team has shown a great deal of bounce back, the Mets ball club, and I, I think you'll see it again. Hey, Mr. Bowie Kuhn, Joe D., thank you so much.
0: Now let's go on back upstairs. How about that little... Oh, some words of wisdom and some insight from one of the greatest to ever do it, Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper. Um, and then, of course, giving credit to Gil Hodges, the manager, a guy he went up against, um, obviously, with, New, with uh, the New York Crosstown rivals. Uh, and then, of course, giving credit to his former teammate, Yogi Berra. Um, and I mean, what a, what a coaching staff Gil Hodges had with uh, Joe Pignatano. Uh, being the bench coach, you had uh, Rube Walker, the pitching coach, Yogi Berra, of course, he was first base coach, and uh, Eddie Yost, Eddie Yost, uh, one of the uh, – a, a local broadcaster here, um, one of the Masson broadcasters uh, who unfortunately has had some health issues uh, lately, Phil Wood, his sign-off would always be Eddie Yost at the end. I, I, I always get a kick out of that. Uh, but Joe DiMaggio, of course, you know, talking about the great defense – uh, and just how impressive these two teams are, and they do it in different ways. Um, and just obviously, you know, he was an, ex- an executive for the uh, Oakland uh, Oakland A's at the time, who, you know, they were an up-and-coming team, and hey, they would have a stretch very soon where they would be the best team in baseball, uh, but definitely recognizing just how impressive the Orioles were. Uh, and I, I kept that little clip in there from Bowie Kuhn where it has specific relevance with who's pitching for the Orioles uh, at this point in time and that's going to be Dave McNally later in his career of course uh, during the 1969 heading into the 1970 season of course there was the huge um, Kurt Flood taking a stand of being traded and and, um, I definitely encourage you to read uh, the book Uh, it's called A Well-Paid Slave and I actually, I'm looking at it right here Written by written by Brad Snyder. It, it really details the story of Kurt Flood and his challenge. It goes into a lot about Marvin Miller and Bowie Kuhn. Interesting little factoid about Bowie Kuhn from Washington D.C. went to Roosevelt High School here in D.C. He's, he's a very large man. I mean, if you watch the video, Joe DiMaggio and Tony Kubek are pretty, you know, decently sized guys, and Bowie Kuhn just towers over them. But in the '40s, when he was when he was in high school. Red Auerbach was the basketball coach at his high school, at Theodore Roosevelt High School here in D, uh, in D.C. And Auerbach saw this tall guy and was like, oh, I wa- hey, you should try out for the basketball team. And Bowie Kuhn was like, I'm not very good. And after one day of practice and tryouts, Red Auerbach, who arguably the greatest uh, basketball coach ever, or certainly in the conversation, was like, ah, yeah, you know what? Uh, you're right. You're not very good. Uh, so that was very early on in Red Auerbach's coaching career, and I just thought that was a fun little factoid, but after Kurt Flood challenged and ultimately lost, Dave McNally and Andy Messersmith in the in the mid-70s ch- ended up challenging the reserve clause, arguing that they should be free agents, and they won. I mean, they, they were, they actually, they essentially played without contracts. It, quite an incredible thing, in you know, I, I certainly don't have any love for Bowie Kuhn and I, you know, I have a lot of love for the players. I'm I'm always someone who's going to kind of take a, take a stance of siding with the players against ownership. Um, and I just, you know, I just thought it was very interesting here you have Bowie Kuhn and think about in, in years to come that Dave McNally was going to be very much at odds with ownership and really kind of being one of those players to take a stand. Um, anyway, Let's get into this game. What a, I mean, it was a beautiful day, mid seventies again, uh, just a just a nice fall day here at Memorial Stadium. The Orioles have a lot of energy, they have a lot of momentum, and they they were looking they were looking to just keep pressing on the Mets. I mean, that I, I think it was sort of, you know, they were very confident. Frank Robinson before the series telling Don Clendenon. Ah, you guys can't beat you guys can't beat us. You can't hang with us. I mean, of course, the Mets, they weren't going anywhere. They were ready. They were ready to strike back. And so we'll see what happens in that game. And very early on, McNally sets the tone very early on. he's he's just, and frankly, for the first three innings, he continues what he was doing from his last couple of uh, postseason appearances. I mean, he eventually, you know, he extends. His scoreless innings postseason streak, twenty three total innings, um, and really doesn't hardly faces any trouble early on. Um, and the same, frankly, can be said uh, about Kuzman. He comes in and sets the tone, but kind of the first inning, you know. So a- after uh, after McNally goes one two three, Kuzman ends up going one two three, but. There's a bit of a tense moment here, you know. They're the, you know, the Baltimore. They're ready. You know, they they took the momentum in Game One. They're ready. You know, the place ballpark's ready to explode, and well, it almost does, but there's just a little bit of a letdown.
2: This is part now of the Oriole power stand. Frank Robinson, who ripped off 32 home runs, but was held hitless yesterday. All one. As a matter of fact, he was fanned twice yesterday. The Met pitching did a fine job against Blair, both Robinson, and Powell, limiting that portion to only one base hit. 1-0. Deep right center field. Very deep, APN for And Spoboda right in front of the 390-foot marker. That ball uh, right to the marker. And so at the end of the first inning of score it is Baltimore nothing and New York
0: nothing. So, I highlight that play there. Uh, a, a deep drive to right center by Frank Robinson, looking like one of his patented gap to gap power home runs. And obviously, you know, he hit 32 home runs, one of the best players in the game at the time, um, and had a penchant for hitting World Series home runs, had, had a World Series MVP under his belt, and looking to, you know, start off the game like Don Buford did in game one. But, Swoboda's there just falls short um, and, you know, kind of a moment to sort of breathe easy for the Mets of, okay, we got through the first, you know, even though we didn't score. All right. You know, and, and that was the thing of in game one, Tom Seaver didn't get a chance to catch a breath immediately from the outset, gave up a lead off home run. Now Kuzman, he's able to come in, settle down, escape, you know, a little bit of trouble, uh, but hey, at the end of the day, one, two, three inning, we're going to go about our business. Um, I'll, I'll take back a comment I made last time of saying that, you know, Dave McNally really had no trouble up in the fourth inning. That's actually, that's a little inaccurate. In the third inning, he ran into a little trouble. He ended up having a couple of base runners on, you know, and uh, it was the bo- the bottom of the Mets order ended up ending up causing some problems for him. Al Weiss ended up getting a base hit. And then after Tom Agee grounded into a fielder's fielder's choice, Bud Harrelson drew a walk against Dave McNally. So a little bit on the ropes, losing a little bit of control. And here comes Cleon Jones, the Mets, uh, who was the Mets' best hitter that season. Uh, Had an absolutely outstanding year. And... McNally falls behind, and then this happens.
2: Normally, long releasers are Leonard and Harden. And let's see, this is Harden, Jim Harden. And that's the bullpen coach right beside Harden. Watching him warm up, that was Charlie Lau. This is McNally, knows he's in a tough spot, knows he's got to concentrate, knows he can't give Jones too good a pitch on three and two. Jones has power and a good clutch for Jones can hit the ball up the middle and also to the power pocket. Runners go. Deep left field. Buford giving it a chase. And Buford almost lost that deep fly ball. He looked like he might have almost overrun the ball. That ball was really ripped to left field. Don Buford converted into an outfielder He's short. He has to go up for this one. Another foot or two, and the Mets might
0: have had two runs in. And so, at the middle of the third inning, the score is New York nothing, Baltimore nothing. Tense moment there. If you're a Baltimore Orioles fan or player, I mean, obviously, only the third inning with one of your best pitchers on the mound, and you're already... Looking to get guys loose in the bullpen. It's a 3-2 count. Runners going. Ball ripped down the left field line. And Buford's right there. Just just tall enough. Just in the right spot. And that's what the Orioles do. They they position themselves well and set themselves up to hey, even if you make a mistake as a pitcher or a physical mistake, we're we're gonna be there and of course you know like that could be a huge momentum swinging play when you when you look back on it and then you know for for the mets it feels like a real missed opportunity there you had mcnally on the ropes you got a great pitch swing hard and hit it and mm, uh, we we use a phrase uh, snake bit that would be uh that would be that would be your feelings at the time but mcnally McNally was uh, was essentially unbothered by this, you know. gave up some gave up some hard contact in the third with a deep fly ball and a line out. Uh, Dom Buford was sort of robbed by Bud Harrelson, but hey, when you at the end of the day threw three scoreless innings and he hasn't he hasn't allowed a hit yet. Koosman's doing real well, real well. And at the top of the in the in the top of the fourth, leading off, it's going to be Don Clendenon, and we're not going to go into the background of Don Clendenon in this episode here today. We're probably going to do that for Game Five to really go deep because, man, I I, I encourage you. One, one of the best things, and I love using Baseball Reference. I mean, that's give a huge shout out to Baseball Reference because I'm a stat nerd. Uh, but I just love looking at the breakdowns of the games, guys' statistics, their their transaction history. I mean, Don Clendenon—they picked up in a trade of this year, and he was a longtime Pittsburgh Pirates first baseman. Uh, sort of had to—I mean—toil through the minor leagues. He hit great in the minor leagues, but he was a young black man playing through the the Jim Crow South on a playing in a great organization who had stars. And, uh, so he really had to, he really had to fight through to break through to the major leagues and he had a very successful career, but now he was in his thirties. He was, uh, unprotected was part of the expansion draft, um, with the Montreal Expos and was not having a great year, but the Mets picked him up. Gil Hodges, who had sort of mentored him in the minor leagues had, had been one of his managers was like, Hey, I think you could do great things for us. Uh, And, I mean, Don Clendenin, he's tall, he's lanky, wears his socks up high, really energetic, uh, just a great, great energy, great energy guy. I love his batting stance. He kind of does this thing where he sort of kicks the bat around and standing up there. And, man, he was, you know, known for gap-to-gap power, uh, known as a great doubles hitter. And, well, this is just one of the things that he could do for you.
2: One after the fastball, Frank Robinson's got a tough play to the fence in right field, and the Mets have gone ahead one to nothing. That's almost in the same spot where Buchard hit his home run yesterday for the Orioles. Glenn Denon with opposite field power just cleared the fence in right field in front of the Ottavia field Bowl. Glen Dennon in this yesterday on today. Now been on twice today. He had two hits
0: yesterday. Look at that follow through. What a what a swing by Clendon there. Taking the fastball to the deepest part of the park, right center field. I mean, you ball almost if you you can almost capture it. Uh, with the the audio quality is a little lacking there, but it sounds like it's shot out of a cannon. I mean, just what a swing, what a stance, uh, and Clendenon. I just love how he he runs the bases there. It's fired up. Runs in the dugout. Is like, let's go. I, almost as if I told you so. And of course, I think uh, there's a story that you know some of the Mets after their game one loss were a bit dejected. You know, Tom Seaver you know, was hanging his head, feeling like he let down the team and they were like, man, what were we going to do against these guys? And, you know, it's sort of, uh, Clendenin joked was, was sort of semi-series and saying, well, you know, Cuellar, Hey, he, he, he fooled with us today, but you know, there's a reason why, you know, he, it took it, it took him so long to, to figure it out at the major league level. He left the national league to go to the American league where it's easier. Uh, but he was more of like hey we got this we've got Kuzman going tomorrow our pitchers our pitchers are better than theirs we're better than them we've got this um so he in many ways you know he was kind of the leader of the team i mean and and it's pr- quite incredible i think you know you have a guy as established as Clendenin was and you know he had to he had to eat some crow unfortunately uh at at this stage of his career and you know you know, he had to swallow a bit of pride to be a platoon guy. I mean, he didn't even play in the NLCS. He didn't. He didn't register an out on the field or a plate appearance. But here he is coming through, stepping up, and and, and that was kind of what Gil Hodges preached: was Hey, you got to be ready. I'm going to put you in a position, and and you're going to be there. Um, before we get along in the game, we're actually not going to leave the fourth inning just yet. The top of the fourth. Uh, because I just, Brooks Robinson, he's incredible. You, you, you heard Joe DiMaggio talk about him. You heard, of course, Cuellar rave about him in the interview. And we're going to hear later in this game, we're going to hear an interview from, an, from, another, from another legend just raving about Brooks Robinson. And there's going to be another Brooks. Uh, Brooks is going to actually come up big in this game. I mean, just, he's incredible. He's just one of the best fielders you're ever gonna see i mean i encourage you go to youtube look up brooks robinson fielding highlights you will not be disappointed but here he is with jerry grody up at the plate to sort of help sell his pitcher down
2: one ball one strike Gil hodges in the uh, Mets dugout along with rube walker his uh, his pitching coach well, that bird uh, enjoying the World Series, and he's the only one to come in this uh, in this ballpark without a ticket today. 1-1. Robinson, tough again, and made it. Well, it's an odd thing. Brooks Robinson says this is not the hardest play for him. Usually it is for a third baseman. The secret, he says, is to pick the ball up as his left foot. Now watch him and throw off the right foot. There he is picking it up on the left foot as it strikes and then throwing as he lifts his right foot up. And he throws overhand. He says his toughest play is backhanding across the body to the line. And so in the middle of the fourth inning, it's New York 1, Baltimore nothing.
0: Any chance I get to highlight Brooks Robinson, defensive gem, I'm going to take. And not necessarily a pivotal play in the game. I mean, of course, Jerry and Jerry Grody, not the most fleet of foot, but moved pretty well for a catcher. Uh, But that, you know, just that slow roller coming in, barehanded it, whipping it across the diamond. It's what Brooks was known for. Um, and, And it's also big, you know, in the sense of, okay, limiting damage. You know, there weren't any other runners on, but who knows? You get a small infield single, perhaps you extend an inning. And especially after giving up a leadoff home run, you know, that's a play that kind of helps settle a pitcher down. And, you know, hopefully also tries to get you some momentum of like, all right, made a big play. Let's go score some runs. Let's get that back. Unfortunately for the Mets, they were running into Jerry Kuzman. Um, He sets him down in order. Um, you know, forcing them to put the ball in play, but Kuzman's on a roll, just unfazed by the moment. Um, and McNally bounces back in the next inning, the fifth inning, he strikes out the side, he's dominant. He's, he's recaptured. He's like, Hey, that's the one that they're getting, you know? And I mean, and oftentimes we talk about what's the job of a starting pitcher and that's to keep your team in the ball game, you know? Hey, occasionally you're gonna you're you're gonna give up you're gonna give up some home runs. You might give up a run. You might give up two runs. But keep it there. Don't don't let things get extended. Um, and a big part of that is sometimes your defense coming through too. And that's what we're gonna see in the bottom of the fifth here. Um, Ron Swoboda coming up big again. Not necessarily a highly a difficult play, but you know you have Andy Etcheverry with two outs. Crushes one down the right field line and Swoboda's there. Take a lesson.
2: Two down, nobody on. That slow ball of Suzman. One ball, no strike. Ball. The Mets got lucky with this boy. He was pitching down in Fort Bliss, And a young fella down there recommended him to his uncle, who was an usher in Shea Stadium. Told the Mets to look him over. There's a fly ball into the right field corner. jeez That ball is hot by Verona. That's twice he's been chased up against fences today. So it's three up, three down. And at the end of five innings here in Baltimore, the score, the New York Mets one and
0: Baltimore, nothing. Defense is really the story of this series. See a great play here by Swoboda running up, up against the wall. Uh, He, of course, would probably have the most famous defensive play from this series in game four, and... uh, just you wait. We, we will, we will cover that in due time. Uh, but that's really what was outstanding about both of these teams was their pitching and their defense. Um, tremendous out athletes out there on the field. Um, we talked, we, you know, I talked a lot about Brooks Robinson and Mark Belanger and Paul Blair, uh, yesterday. Uh, well, the last time I did the show, if you're listening to it, it might be yesterday. Um, in actuality, <laughs> I did. I didn't record these on consecutive days. But anyway, in the previous show, uh, is what I meant. Um, but with Bud Harrelson was an excellent defensive shortstop. Jerry Grody was great behind the dish. Tom Tom Agee, we're going to see him have a great, outstanding defensive game in in Game Three. It, it's really, really special in this series. You see some great defense. And it allowed. I mean, that gave the pitchers the confidence to really attack guys, and and that's what's so cool. I mean, and that's part of baseball that I love. I love balls in play. I love great defensive highlights. Don't get me wrong. I love strikeouts too. I you I mean you give me a, a Max Scherzer twenty strikeout game. I'm I'm pretty. Those can be quite electric as well. Uh, but I guess the, the the main point I want to get is pitchers attacking guys, going after guys. I mean, and that's what. Dave McNally was doing in this game. And that's what, that's what Jerry Kuzman was doing. And we're going to see him continue that. I mean, he's, he's going to continue, you know, up to this point, you know, so that's a ball down in the corner. Great play by Swoboda. He's still yet to give up a hit and that's going to stay true through six innings. As we're going to see on a, it's going to be a tough play coming up here by Bud Harrelson. And don't get me wrong here either. Dave McNally. He really, you know, after giving up that home run, he was determined that that was all that they were going to get. And he was as quick as he could, you know, putting the pressure right back on Kuzman to go back out there because he was having quick innings. So we're going to see here a real a nice tough play by Bud Harrelson. Two
2: down, nobody on. You could grind bunny play on, strike one to him. Blair on deck. Talked about Tom A.G. leading his club in RBI. Buford had 64 runs batted in this year. One and one to so him. We have two leadoff men in this uh, World Series, both outstanding and driving in runs, hitting in that leadoff spot. The 1-1 pitch. Change up. Bounce to short. Bad hop. Harrelson handles it. Throws him out. And for the first six innings of this game, Jerry Kuzman is six to no hitter. At the end of six, the score, the New York Mets
0: one, and the Baltimore Orioles nothing. What a feeling that must have been for Jerry Kuzman. Uh, And also, you know, another opportunity to take a deep breath. But your first World Series game, it's your second year in the big leagues. Not just, not too long ago, years back. You know, you were pitching down in an army base in Texas, and here you are throwing a no-hitter in your first World Series start. You know, and uh, as mentioned there on the call by Kirk Gowdy, and and if you watch the highlight, it takes a real hop on uh, Bud Harrelson, who's obviously charging in because Don Buford's got – he's a speedster. He he really can cover ground, you know, even for being as short as he was. Um, But great play there by bud harrelson mcnally then in the top of the seventh actually uh faced a faced a little bit of uh faced a little bit of trouble ed charles again another one of the of gil Hodges' platoon players you know gets a double on you know is on second base and but mcnally works out of it and actually you know ended up in intentionally walking uh al weiss you know and then uh to face Kuzman. I'm going to bring that up because it's an important thing that, that that comes up later when we get to the ninth inning. Um, But then faces Kuzman. Obviously this is before we had DHs. And so Kuzman, he, he wasn't a hitter. That wasn't, that wasn't what, uh, that wasn't what Jerry Kuzman was paid to do. Uh, You had some pitchers who took, who took pride in hitting Uh, Jerry Kuzman was not one of them, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, so able to escape some trouble there and we get to the bottom of the seventh, you know, you've got a no hitter. He, so Jerry Kuzman's nine outs away from throwing a no hitter and, and tying up this series, but the Orioles wouldn't make that easy. Paul Blair leads off with a single. Um, he's Kuzman's able to bounce back and get Robinson out and a blue pal the the two main sluggers but man something special happens here really incredible i mean just great baseball great fundamental baseball you see and just again how quickly things can change jerry kuzman being now just seven outs from having a shutout well just take a listen here
2: Brooke Robinson, over 2 Kuzman finished strong for the Mets this year. He had a five-game winning streak at the end of the season. He was uh, knocked out in Atlanta in Game 2 in there is championship series. He bounced back today with a brilliant effort. The curve is a strike. Fastball, curve, up, mixing them up. Today he's 0 for 6 so far after getting 7 for 14 against Minnesota. You know he knocked in 84 runs during the year when you consider hitting behind Powell and Robinson who cleaned the bases a lot. It's quite an RBI total. There goes the runner. A throw by Gaudy. Huseman, uh, Blair had 20 steals just in under the tag and inside. Now the Orioles have a tying run at second, two down. A 1 1 pitch to Brook Robinson. They it.
0: Now that's not the typical offense you'd expect from an Earl Weaver team. He, of course, preached single, single, three-run homer. Much of much of baseball of the day was single, bunt, stolen base—you know, manufacturing runs. And he was much more analytically minded in saying, "Hey, if I get two hits and a guy hits a three-run homer or a double to the gap, it's more runs. It's better for my team. I'm outs are precious." Um, and, but if you, the 90 feet is so important in baseball, if you can get it, that extra 90 feet, because getting three hits in an inning is pretty hard to do. And of course they hadn't gotten any hits leading into this inning against Jerry Kuzman. But what, what a, uh, what a gamble there by Paul Blair and immediately rewarded for it with a with a single up the mi- up the middle by Brooks Robinson, really in ma- in many ways was seen as the Orioles captain. Although probably at that point, I mean that season he was maybe the fifth or sixth best Oriole in the lineup in terms of hitting. Um, but no one no one doubted his importance to the Orioles, um, and he's going to also come up. I have to highlight another another Brooks Robinson web gem. We got one in the eighth inning here. Um, again, no one else on base, but a, a pretty tough play for Robinson going to his left on a ball where perhaps Belanger could have called him off. But uh, Robinson, he's just so, so adept at going to his left and throwing on the run. And, you know, so now the game's squared up um kuzman kuzman was able to you know he's able to get his uh get his team to the ninth inning um but it's just a very very uh very interesting game you know how quickly i mean kuzman was dominating dominating but when your offense but you know much to the same degree kuz uh mcnally aside from the home run was dominating Hardly uh hardly having too many high stress pitches. Um it's just how quickly things can change and now we're knotted up at one one. The Orioles I mean man, if they can take this, if they can come back and win this game, you know, heading up two oh going to New York, retaining home field advantage, it's huge. It's huge. But the Mets, okay. The Orioles punch back at them. Let's see what they got. Um We'll get to that in a moment. But first, another outstanding play by Brooks Robinson. The Human Vacuum.
2: Pitching and defense have sparkle today on both clubs. On deck is Leon Jones. One ball, one strike. One out, nobody on. Brooks Robinson to his left. He got it. He's down. A human vacuum. Kirk Belanger was in position to get the ground ball. But Brooks cut right in front of Belanger. He had the glove down just like Charles did. And then he had a hurry to throw to first base to just get the runner by two steps. You can see why Brooks Robinson says, I go all right to my left. I have a little
0: trouble to my right. So here we are, heading to the ninth inning, all tied up 1-1 with a pitcher's duel. Both pitchers, both starters still in the game. What a game. What What a pitching clinic. What a defensive clinic with some key hits, too. But now we get to the ninth inning and It actually starts off really well for Dave McNally. He gets a strikeout of Don Clendenin, who'd had his number so far throughout the day. And Ron Swoboda grounds out to first. Two outs, going to send his team to the bottom of the ninth with a chance to win. Wow. I mean, just... What what an opportunity. What an opportunity. But, unfortunately for Dave McNally, man standing in his way is Ed Charles, who doubled earlier in the game. Again, Gil Hodges with his platoons, he believed in it. He believed in it. He gets a base hit. And then Jerry Grody. How about Jerry Grody coming in with a base hit? And so now, okay, you got two runners on. You've got the bullpen and It's the ninth inning. And this is decision time for Earl Weaver. You've got light hitting Al Weiss. And he's another guy who we're going to have to take some time and talk about. Because Al Weiss, another guy in his 30s, had not really been a productive player at any point in his career. He hit almost under 200 this season. He was part of the Tommy Agee deal. And, but was underperforming, underwhelming, but he had the Mets' only RBI in Game 1, and here he is with an opportunity to do something special in Game 2 of the World Series.
2: After Bamberger went back to the Orioles' dugout, the sign went out to the Orioles for warm-up action. It's Dick Hall warming up again now. There's a base hit to left, coming in to score Charles, and the Mets take the lead, 2-1. Three hits in a row for the Mets. El wife. Coming through with a big hit here, with two down in the top of the ninth. Gary Kuzman just walking to the mound, getting a hand from some of the fans, and let's quickly go down to Tony Chubet. Thank you, Colonel Whitney, once again, Mickey Mantle, Mickey... I have not seen very many World Series games where there were more great defensive plays made. Well, I haven't either, Tony. I think that uh, Brooks Robinson made
3: some of the best plays I've ever seen. Them plays where he comes running in along the infield there and grabs
2: that ball and throws it on a dead run like that. I've seen him play a long time, but he still amazes me every time I see him. Nick, you know what Al Weiss just did a moment ago in getting that punch base hit has been typical of this Mets ball all year long. It's always somebody different. I know
3: it just seems like uh, whenever they have to have a hit like that, they get one. Uh, it's going to be tough for the Royals to score. It looked like the wind was changing for a while, but it's still it's blown in from right field. They're going to get one after
2: they hit it over the left field fence. Mick, thank you so much. Right now, let's go on back upstairs.
0: Well, as Mick put it, what a moment for the Mets. Someone always coming through, the right guy at the right time. And that's really been the story of their season. And uh, who better than Mickey Mantle to go to, to to ask for an opinion on a great World Series game as he practically was in every World Series game throughout the 50s and early 60s. Only a few years he wasn't there. Um, it's always great to go to legends and, and get their perspective on, on what's going on in front of them. Uh, with uh, great World Series performances and really the defense and the timely hitting. It's it's the story of the series and it's the story of the season for the Mets. And uh, we're going to see another great defensive play coming here. And and really, if you were a Mets fan, the bottom of the ninth, was kind of tense. Started off pretty well. With Jerry Kuzman getting, getting Buford to fly out to right and Paul Blair to ground out to short and Wow, one out away from just a masterful, dominant performance. But standing in his way were Brooks Robinson and Boog Powell. And you could see the moment almost get a little too big for Kuzman. Ends up walking Frank Robinson. And after a mound visit, ends up walking Boog Powell. Some of the pitches weren't close. And so decision time for Gil Hodges because up steps Brooks Robinson, the guy who got, just got Kuzman two innings ago, a chance to tie the game again, put it into extras. And who knows what can happen? And, you know, this was a time period where most of the time starting pitchers, they, they finished games. You had your guy on the mound, you let him finish it out. But interestingly enough, Hodges says, "Hey, you know what? i'm go- I'm going to the pen. Ron Taylor, he gave us gave us a couple solid innings yesterday. I believe he's gonna do the same thing right here. He's gonna he's gonna basically take us to the promised land. you know and and Ron Taylor had been, you know, not necessarily been a guy who had great uh, performances throughout his career but he had been a solid dependable reliever for them, you know, and of course with the right-handed matchup, you know, typically tug McGraw was the closer. He was the guy to finish out games for the Mets in this 1969 season, but McGraw was a lefty Taylor was a righty. And as I've kind of hounded on Hodges really believed in those righty lefty matchups, even if the numbers didn't necessarily bear it out, but here you go. Ron Taylor coming to a World Series game, we only need you to get one out, one guy. That's all that's all we need you to do. But it's Brooks Robinson. We're talking about a guy who everyone knew was going to be a Hall of Famer. And he's going to score in Frank, trying to score in Frank Robinson, someone everyone knew was going to be a Hall of Famer. So, take a listen to what happens. When Gil Hodges makes the decision to go to Ron Taylor, taking out Jerry Kuzman, who'd only given up two hits. He only gave up two hits the entire game. But it was only a 2-1 lead. Three and
2: two now. Two down. The runners will be going. Redmond at second. Foul at first. Let's go. Three and 2 We're going. the first when Denon dug it out of the dirt and the Mets win it 2-1. to Charles made a quick mental recovery on that one. What a ball game this was. In the ninth inning, Baltimore, no runs, no hits, no errors. They left two. The final score, the New York Mets, two runs, six hits, and no errors. The Baltimore Orioles,
1: one run.
0: What a play there by Ed Charles. And you know, I, I neglected to mention, actually, they pinch-ran for Frank Robinson with uh, Merv Rettman. Um And, you know, it was 3-2 count. Dicey, Gil Hodges is probably wondering, did I make the right move? And just think, if that ball gets through, run scores easily, we got a tie game and probably a runner on third with the Orioles a chance to win. And, of course, with the runners going, Charles can't just go step on third base and he hesitated, but corrected himself fires a throw over to first and the Mets escape. They get, they're going to be heading back to New York with the series tied up. And from the Orioles perspective, they got to look at it and think, man, that was a game we could have had, you know, despite, despite Kuzman's brilliance, McNally kept him in it and, they were right there with an opportunity to take that game and be up 2-0. But what a decision. What a decision by by Hodges. I mean, sometimes it, you know, managers sometimes get credited with, oh, what a great decision. Well, if it works out, if it doesn't work out, <laughs> you get uh you can be maligned and, and said, Oh, well, you're taking Kuzman out of a game where he was throwing a two hitter. Yeah, well, we walked two guys. But overall, just what a fantastic game. I mean, what a fantastic series so far. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited to cover these next next couple games here. I mean, of course, if you go to Baseball Reference, you you know how this series plays out. But what's exciting for me is to go back through these games and just see, man, at at different stages – Someone, one team could have taken control of this series or it could have slipped away from another. And, you know, despite Kuzman's brilliance, this game almost got away from the Mets. And the Orioles could have been heading up to New York, up 2-0. But they, ha- but they held on. They held on and and really it came down to um it came down to great defense that's ultimately what it comes down to and that's going to play out throughout the rest of this series and uh I encourage you again if you get a chance to watch the highlights from this series you can see what incredible defensive plays are made and really the high degree of difficulty um and just how if some of these play and high degree of difficulty plays on key moments Runs saved. It's really it's really quite incredible. Um, I hope you will join us next time. We're going to have a really exciting game three. In terms of score, this game is not going to be the closest, but it's got some real highlight and high energy moments uh, and some fantastic performances uh, by players. I'm really, really excited to get into it. You know, as we go from Memorial Stadium up north to Queens to Flushing Meadows, Shea Stadium, first time that there's going to be a World World Series games in Shea Stadium. Going to be a raucous crowd. Really exciting. So, hope you'll tune in. Follow along to the next episode of
1: Fall Classic Rewind. Catch you next time.